Scripture reading today is going to be Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 5. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 through the beginning of verse 5. says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod, strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the, among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of, the, of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. May God bless the reading of his word. On April 4, 1943, a U.S. Air Force B-24 bomber from the 376th Bomb Group called the Lady Be Good was sent on a bombing mission to Naples along with a group of other bombers. Along the way, they encountered some bad weather and the Lady Be Good got separated. After the Lady Be Good returned or was trying to return to base, that bad weather continued and she hit a sandstorm, lost her bearings, and could not find her way. She radioed to her home base to get coordinates, and they were sent to her. It is unknown whether she ever received them. The Lady Be Good was never heard from again. But on November 9th, 1958, she was discovered 440 miles inland in the Libyan desert. She had crossed the, the Mediterranean Sea and gone into the desert. She had gone so far, of course, it was a miracle that she even made it that far. Investigations concluded that the first time crew, an all new crew, on their very first active war mission, failed to realize that they had overflown their air base in the sandstorm. After continuing to fly south into the desert for many hours, the crew bailed out when the plane ran out of fuel. The survivors then died in the desert trying to walk to safety. All but one of the crew's remains were found. Um, they were found between February and August of 1960. And in 1994, the wreckage was finally removed. You see, just as the crew of the Lady Be Good was searching for their destination, they were searching for what they knew was there. They just could not find it. Um, you will see in this passage that we are about to read that the Jews were looking for their Messiah. They knew he was coming. They knew what to look for, but they could not see it in plain sight. Our passage today is going to be John chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 36. 
It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He could not go about in Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has yet come, but your time is always here. See if that helps. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. If you go up to the feast, um, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision? Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? 
Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does this man, or what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the day. Father, we thank you for this passage that we are about to study. And Father, more importantly, we thank you for your son. Father, I ask that you would remove me from the equation as this sermon is preached, that you would speak through me and that it would be your words that are heard and not mine. Forgive me for where I fall short, Father, and just use me as a tool. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So a little bit of background context here. Two weeks ago, Justin finished preaching on John 6. Last week, he was talking about the Feast of Booths. So we've got the background of John 6 and the background of the Feast of Booths here. Between verse 71 in chapter 6 and verse 2 of chapter 7, there's a six-month period of time. We know this because chapter 6 takes place at the Passover. It's six months, roughly, from the Passover to the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. What's this after this is talking about? Is in chapter 6, Jesus just lost a whole bunch of disciples. He said he was God. And a lot of people weren't comfortable with that, and they left. And he's pretty much left with 12 disciples. So, he spends the remainder of this six months in Galilee teaching, preaching. Um, some of this is recorded in the other Gospels. John doesn't talk about it very much. But in chapter 2, we see now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Um, I'm going to back up real quick. The Jews in chapter 1, it talks about, we have three sets of people that are going to be named in this passage. We have the Jews, we have the crowd, or the people as some of it some of the translations say and then we have the people of Jerusalem the Jews as the religious authorities is what John's referring to the Sadducees and the Pharisees these are the ones that are seeking to kill him the crowd when it says this is the pilgrims the feast of booths is one of the pilgrimages that they would make people would if at all possible they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast there because that's where the high priest and everybody would be teaching and it's where the temple was. So we have a crowd of people come in. And then in the end of the chapter, we'll see the people of Jerusalem. This is the people that live in Jerusalem, not the pilgrims, the ones that are there all the time, who are actively knowing what's going on with the temple at all times. The Jews, when it talks about the Jews, we are talking about theological issues. When he talks about what the crowd's talking about, we're talking about issues of faith in those sections. And with the people, we're talking about political issues because they know what the Messiah is. They think the Messiah is supposed to be a political ruler. So they're all looking at this from different aspects. Now the Jews' Feast of Booth was at hand. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Sukkot, whatever you want to call it, happens in September to October. Um, I saw one commentary that tried to give me an exact date that this happened, but we're not... They, I'm not even sure that the year they said, because they said in AD 32. But if he, I don't know if that's quite right, because Jesus would have been a little bit off there, I think. Um, but September, October time frame, Jesus makes this, he's in Galilee, and he's getting ready to make his last trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. 
He's got about five to six months left in his life. It took six chapters to cover 32 years. From chapter 7 to the end of John is about five to six months. So John goes really in-depth in those last few months. Um, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judah, that your, or Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus' brothers were talking. We know from the Gospels and from the Bible that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We know their names. Jesus was the oldest, of course, because Mary was a virgin when she had him. The Roman Catholic Church will tell you that these brothers and sisters were not his real brothers and sisters. These were Joseph's kids from another marriage. But nothing in Scripture tells you, gives you that kind of, of hint. In fact, when it talks about Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem for the census, anybody in that family would have had to go on, but it doesn't say anything about him taking a mass load of children with him, just him and Mary and a donkey. So these are natural-born brothers and sisters of his with Joseph as their father. And you got to think about it. These brothers, these sisters, they grew up with the perfect brother, the kid who could do no wrong. You know, I have two sisters, and I know there were times when I did wrong, but there were times when I didn't do something, and they did something, and I still got blamed for it. And that, that made me really mad that I was getting in trouble. Or they did something that I would have got in trouble for, and nothing happens. I was always, just imagine if your brother's perfect, can do absolutely no wrong because he's God. Of course, you don't believe he's God. His brothers at this point do not believe that he is the Messiah. They think he's just the goody-two-shoe of the family. Um, and this, when it says, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. It seems like they're giving him good advice. You just lost a bunch of disciples. Get up, go to the feast, do your miracles there. Everybody, everybody can see you and come to believe in you. But they're not doing this how that. They're doing this, they are mocking him. This is, go, do these things because we know you're seeking to be famous. They are treating him like somebody would treat Kim Kardashian right now. Believe he is doing these miracles just for attention. They may not even believe they're actually miracles. But this is the, the kind of te the tone we get, especially when you read it in the Greek. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has, yet, has not yet come, but your time is always here. In the Jewish tradition, when you read some of the older Jewish works, you will see that, especially after the time of Jesus, they believed that everybody had a time for what God sent them for. So when Jesus says, my time is not yet here, that's not really a big issue. They believe everybody had a reason they were sent for. But when he says, your time is always here, that's Jesus throwing it back at them. Not in a, not in a bad way, but he's just letting them know, my time's not here. But what you were sent here for, until you accept who I am, means nothing. Your time is here all the time. 
And then he goes, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it's worse or evil. He just adds on to it. Not only is your life not important until you accept me and who I am and start following the true God. The world can't even hate you. The evil of this world can't hate you because you're part of it. But because I am the Messiah and I come up forth and I not only do right, but I tell everybody what they're doing wrong. Tell the, especially the Sadducees and the Pharisees when he walks into the temple and overturns tables, that makes them mad and they hate him for it. When he does things that they know is right, but they don't want to admit because they're doing wrong, they make some hate them for it. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. This is going to seem a little weird because Jesus tells him to go. And then he says he's not going, but then he goes anyways. So is Jesus lying here? No. What Jesus is saying is, I am not going to this feast. The feast he is talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles. The people in Jerusalem right now are traveling to the feast. When they get there, they will be making booths. They will be setting up tents so that God can come and dwell with them. They are looking forward to God being on earth with them. Problem is, God is already here at this point, And he is Jesus. Jesus has no reason to go and celebrate this stuff because he is the feast. As Justin pointed out last week, he is the ultimate fulfilling of the Feast of Tabernacles. There is no, no more ultimate fulfilling of it than God literally standing in their presence and dwelling with them, which is what's happening. However, there will be an even more ultimate fulfilling when he comes back in the end and permanently dwells. Um, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but it private. So this is a pilgrimage. His brothers go. And this wouldn't have been just his brothers. This would have been the whole family affair coming from, that was able to go from this area. And to give you an idea of how big these gatherings would have been, if you go back and look in, I believe it's Luke. I missed my. I'll just summarize. If you remember the, the, the passage where Jesus is a little kid and he goes to the temple with his parents and they leave and it says that Jesus stayed behind and they traveled and did not realize he was missing because they believed he was among the group. This group was a large group. They could travel days and not realize their child was gone because they believed he was among their family members. And it was several days before they realized and turned around. It wasn't because they were being bad parents. It's because they just believed he was with the family. So this large group would travel from Galilee up to Jerusalem. And Jesus stays behind. Um... But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? The Greek actually uses, where is that man? 
the Jews here again is the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the group called the San, that run the Sanhedrin. They are the group of 70, and they follow one set of theological beliefs. And then you have the Sadducees, who include most of the high priest and the, the chief priest. We have one high priest, and then we have our chief priests, which are that family, and they're the ones that control what goes on in the temple. And they believe another set of theological things. And they don't really get along all the time. Their beliefs clash with each other. However, for this point, they come to an agreement to hate Jesus and to seek him. So it says they are seeking to kill him. But when it says, where is that man? They're not saying it like, where is he? We just want to see him. It's more of a despicable, despising tone. Where is that man? That man who's leading the people astray. Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Again, the people, that's the crowds, the pilgrims coming in. A lot of these would have been from Galilee. They would have been seeing the miracles he did, had already done in Jerusalem, but the ones he did in Galilee. A lot of them may have been some of his disciples that backed off. But they were looking for him because they had seen other miracles. And they're saying he's a good man. What's the problem with being called a good man? Especially in Scripture. Scripture says there is none good, not one. There is none righteous. So for him to be a good man, he has to be God. That's the only way that, that you can meet that qualification. But this doesn't mean that those people actually believed. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So we don't know how long Jesus stayed after his brothers left. But we know that about the middle of the feast would probably be about the third or fourth day of a seven-day feast, with the eighth day being the ultimate end of it. But he goes up to the temple and starts teaching. The Jewish temple at this time had the main temple building, and then it had several courts. It had the court of men, the court of women, and the court of Gentiles. And in these courts, we have several porticos or covered areas like Solomon's porch. And this is where the rabbis, they would gather to teach. It wasn't uncommon for people just to go in there and hear what the rabbis were saying. There would be somebody out there under a portico just out of the sun teaching. And this is where Jesus goes. He didn't go to set up a booth. He didn't go to make a tent. He goes to the temple to teach. So at this point, you have the word of God, which is Jesus, proclaiming the word of God in the house of God. How much more of a fulfillment of the Feast of Booths could you have? Um, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This would be like just anybody getting up here on a Sunday morning that's not had any training, getting up here, not been to school, not been to anything, picking up this Bible and start expounding it like they're Adrian Rogers and just going off and not missing a single theological issue here. In this time, this is after the Greeks started the institutions and the Jews carried on some of these things. They had several rabbionic schools in the area. So the rabbis would go 
and they would be trained just like we would at seminary and they would study and they would do this. Everybody, or not everybody, it wasn't common for most males to be able to, and females for a lot of them, to be able to pick up a scripture, a Torah, and read what it said and, or even be able to quote you scripture. But that's different than going around studying and sitting here and getting all the little theological issues out of it and be able to tell you what it means. And this is what Jesus is doing. And these men are amazed because they know he's a carpenter's son. He wasn't in any of their schools. How is he doing this? So Jesus answered them. They're talking among themselves, remember, not to Jesus, but he answers them. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So he just throws out there, this is not of me. I am not the one giving you these words. These are not something I did. This is to get past their mindset that if somebody comes up and has no training, that he's talking for himself and it's pointless, it's worthless. He is saying that he was trained. He was given training by the ultimate teacher, by God the Father. Um, if anyone's will is to, God's, to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This right here applies not just to the people there, it applies to us. If anybody gets up to teach, Scripture tells them that they are to do it rightly because they will be judged harder than other people. If they are getting up here and teaching something other than what Scripture says, they're seeking their own glory. And there are plenty of televangelists that are, I don't even call televangelists, television pastors, mega church pastors that will get up and they will preach. But when you look at what they're preaching, it does not line up with God's word. They're doing this for their own authority. But when they preach what God's word says and they are seeking his glory, it's obvious. And anyone who is a follower of Christ can tell that. Um, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So he throws it back at him. He says, has Moses given you the law? You know, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, is what they followed. Moses gave that to them, and they, they believed that in order to be a good Jew, in order to go to heaven, in order to do this, you had to keep everything the law said. And this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees preached. You have to follow the Torah. Only problem is they had all kinds of rules to get around things. They had a rule saying that on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any regular work. So that means you can't work so many, walk more than so many steps. But if you sit on the day before an object at the end of that steps, you walk to it and pick it up, your steps recount because you're picking up your object. So you could go and technically set these out all the way to another town and walk and pick them up and it resets. Is this in line with what scripture says, with what God was getting at by the, the letter and the spirit of what he was saying. No, but they would do these things. So Jesus goes, has Moses given you the law, what you follow? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The reason he says, why do you seek to kill me? Is because the law says, thou shall not kill. Exodus 20, 13, one of the Ten Commandments. Yet they are seeking to break the law with him. Um, Jesus answered them, I did one work 
and you all marveled at it. That one work is found in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, where Jesus heals the crippled man. This is what he's talking about. And he did it on a Sabbath. And they got mad. They marveled at it, but the leaders got mad because he did it on Sabbath. Not because he healed, just because of the day he did it. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry at me on the Sabbath because a whole man's or a man's whole body was made well? You see, God's law says do not do any work on the Sabbath. Keep it holy. But God also told them to circumcise on the eighth day. So if circumcision falls, if the eighth day falls on Sabbath, are we supposed to wait another day or circumcise that day? They circumcise. The reason for this is because they didn't know this, but we now know with science that on the eighth day, blood in the human body clots faster than any other day of life. So God tells them to do it this day so these babies don't bleed out because it's a very vascular area. So if doing this constitutes okay, why is healing somebody's whole body wrong? He's using an argument of lesser to greater. This is a common argument they would use. They would say, well, if this is okay, then this is all right to do. Why is something more important not okay to do? And it's a valid argument. If I can take one member of a person's body, and that only applies to half the population at that, and do something to it on that day because it's okay, why cannot fix the whole body? Do not judge by appearances, but judge by or judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So now we're transitioning to that third group, the people of Jerusalem. They know they got the one group that says, Who's seeking to kill you? because they're not from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, they're from Galilee and the outlying areas. They don't know what the temple priests are doing. People of Jerusalem know that they're seeking him. So is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Common practice in the day was what we call tactic approval. If something was going on that was wrong, the rabbis would say something about it. That was their job. If they didn't say something about it and it kept going on, they knew about it, the people took it that that's right. So here we have a man claiming to be God. If he's not God, he's definitely breaking some of the commandments and breaking the law. He's in the temple declaring openly this and nobody says nothing to him. Do they know it's true? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. So they answer their own question. We know where he comes from. He can't be the Christ. Is that what scripture says? They've taken a couple verses that I'm not going to go back to right now, and they have misinterpreted them, saying we can't know. He's just going to appear. Problem with that is the verse that Justin read this morning, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient days. This is the same verse that when King Herod summoned the, the priest to determine where the Messiah would be born, that they went back to. This is the same verse they quote to him. 
from Bethlehem. So if just 32 years before they can know who, where he was coming from, why could these people not? They're, they're not even right in what they're saying. Um, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. So he's already teaching. But anytime you see Jesus proclaimed, it usually means he just loudly raised his voice and addressed the entire crowd. But he's addressing people who are muttering. He's not even technically supposed to be able to hear them. And he goes, you know me. You know where I have come from. But I have not come from my, of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. So he says, you know me. You know where I came from. But I'm not on my own. I came because God told me to. God sent me. And you do not know God. The people of God do not know who God is. And they can't know who God is unless they know who Jesus is. Scripture is very clear about that. If you don't know the Father, you don't know the Son. If you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father. They are one and the same God. So he pretty much like slapping the face to him, which makes them mad. I know him. I have come from him, and he sent me. That heralds back to verse, or chapter 1, verse 18, which says, No one has seen God, the only God. I'm oh, sorry. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Only the Son has seen the Father, because the Son came from the Father. By declaring that he comes from the Father, he is declaring that he is God. Um. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I'm going to speed it up here. Um, Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. We have five to six months to the cross, so it's not very much time he's got left. You will seek me and you will find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So not all, since the Jews were sent off to Babylon and they were deported, when they were allowed to come back, not everybody came back. A lot of them decided they liked where they were at. And they are scattered all throughout Persia, Asia, Rome, the known world, they are, they are scattered throughout because that's where they like to live. So they're saying, is he going to go teach them now? Is he going to go teach the Gentiles, the Greeks? That's a bad thing in their sight because according to the way they look at it, only the Jews have the right to know God because they're his people. The main idea of this passage is one and the same as the main idea of the book. John 20, 31 says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Even though the Jews didn't see it, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the ultimate feast of tabernacles. We need to be willing and able to do what the Jews could not and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And that while he is the ultimate feast of tabernacles, there will be a day when the feast is permanently fulfilled and dwelling among us. And we need to be ready. It's not enough to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. 
um, we need to accept the gift of salvation that he offers. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Everybody has sinned. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as one man, as through one man, sin into the world, death through sin, and so death spreads all men because all have sinned. Every one of us in this room has sinned at one point or another, whether it was stealing, whether it was lying, whether it was murder, whether it was cheating on our wives or our husbands, whatever it was, we sinned. And we deserve that death. For the wages of the sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 10, 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth confesses resulting in righteousness. We, we know these things because we have heard them over and over. Scripture tells us. But the thing is, what have we done with it? We know that Jesus is Messiah. We know that we are sinners. A lot of us proclaim that we believe in him. But believing with your mind is not the same as believing with your heart. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. You have heard from Jesus' own words today that he is the Messiah. He proclaimed to them the same thing he proclaims to us. And, but it's like, if I took this dollar bill or $100 bill or $20 bill, whatever I had with me, and I held it up and I said, I will give this to whoever comes and gets it. Does it do you no good if you sit there, right? You have to come and accept it and ask for it. The same as that gift of salvation, that gift of forgiveness. He's holding it there just asking for you to accept it. We have clearly seen that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Will you be like the crew of the Lady Be Good who having the direction sent to them either ignored them or did not receive them, resulting in their destruction? Or will you respond to the directions and run to Jesus? Will you confess that you are a sinner and recognize that Jesus is the Christ and repent of your sins? We're going to enter into a time of invitation. You've heard the gospel. You've presented. You know who Jesus is. If today you are not a believer or follower of Christ and you feel God leading you that way, now is the time to come forward and accept. Maybe today you don't have a church home and you feel that this is the place for you. Today is the time. This, now is the time to come and do that. Um, I'm going to say a prayer and then Wayne's going to play a song, and if you feel called to any of these things, or you just want to pray or talk, feel free to come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. Father, we thank you for your son. We just thank you for the fact that you saw fit to send your son, God himself, to earth, to give up his throne, and to come and dwell among us as a man. And that you saw fit to put him to death, even the death of a cross, the most shameful and horrible death imaginable. But even more, Father, we thank you that he rose himself from the dead and that now he says they're offering us this gift of salvation. And Father, I pray that as we go throughout this invitation, throughout the rest of the day, that you would just keep these things on our hearts. 
ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.